Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It is a great pleasure to welcome uh, a gentleman who's been a great influence on me and my writing, but we've never met in person. We still have never met. We have to meet someday in person, Paul. But it's, uh, it's uh, Professor Paul Halpern, who's a professor of physics at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia. He's the author of 16 popular science books. All of them are fascinating, and some of them are uh, undoubtedly known to everyone out there in the audience, uh, such as The Quantum Labyrinth, which is fascinating, and Einstein's Dice and Schrodinger's Cat. Uh, he lives in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. First question I have for you, Paul, you've done so much, you've written so much, you're an online, uh, you're an intellectual, you're a, a scientist, you're a professor. Um, how do you think of yourself? What is the core uh, element of who you are as a human being on Earth? Well, uh, first of all, I wanted to thank you for inviting me on the show, Brian. And in terms of my own self-conception, I guess I always think of myself as being a person of ideas. I, I love to discuss ideas with people. And um, I also really love nature. And I have a mixed reaction to technology, as, as do, I think, many people. But I love technology, but I also love being away from technology. I like kind of communing with nature, walking in the woods, um, bicycling, and so forth. So that's about as, that's as much a part of me as um, doing highly technological things why like that. Why is that? Twitter. That's actually, I didn't expect that. Why is that? Why, do you, why is that so uh, intrinsic to who you are or important to you? I, I feel like nobody should... Um, should have one way of defining them. And, I, and, and I'm somebody who's always liked to have different aspects of my personality. And I, I recall, for example, when I was back in graduate school doing my PhD program, I really narrowed my horizon doing a thesis, a very mathematical thesis on general relativity and cosmology. And then I started to feel really down and really isolated. And I felt almost zombified just working on this mathematical project. And then I said to myself, well, what's going on? And what was going on is I didn't have other aspects of my life. So mm. once I got away, I had a bicycle at the time, I would bike into wooded areas or bike along uh, the shore of Long Island where I was or write poetry, wasn't, which wasn't particularly good, but it still brought me out of my mind. And I just felt much more balanced. Mm. So I vowed from that point forward never to be unbalanced, always have many different activities. And that's a, sort of a key in some of the personalities in this book. And I think this book is a departure, and correct me if I'm wrong, from your previous books. It spoke loudest to me, and I couldn't put it down. I listened to the audio book. I read the uh, physical book as a companion. Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, I kind of feel like you're in my head. And that was important and, and appropriate because I felt this is almost a book about not only human psychology, uh, but also about friendship. And the first thing I want to talk about, whenever I see these books, and I knew, you know, when it has quantum in the title, you know, I talked to my friend David Kaiser, who I'm sure you know. I've talked to uh, many other physicists, you know, written interpretations of quantum mechanics. Actually, I told David Kaiser, I said, my first fear when I was reading Quantum Legacies, which is his book that came out this past year, was that it was not going to be another quantum uh, interpretations book. And, and I looked up, I said, well, I wonder if that's an acronym, N-A-Q-I-B, not another quantum interpretations book. It turns out it is an acronym, or it's a word in Arabic, and it means a person of great understanding. <laughs> so uh, in a way, you are a naquib, but, uh, but this book isn't really about that. It's really a book about personalities and friendship. Can you, uh, can you talk to me, what was the most surprising relationship that you uncovered in the research and writing of this book? Well, it was interesting to see all the different aspects of Wolfgang Pauli's personality because he could both be a hard-headed physicist and, and quite mean to people, but then he also had this very sensitive side. It shows that no matter how hard-edged somebody is, and no matter how gruff, they might still have this very sensitive uh, side and, and be, you know, be vulnerable in some ways. And he was very vulnerable uh, about his relationships. Uh, he, you know, his first marriage was a disaster and he had a lot of trouble relating to women. And that's when he turned to Carl Jung and, uh, and that became a kind of a friendship, an unlikely friendship uh, between the two of them. It was more of a professional relationship rather than I would say 
you know, they weren't really pals, but they got very close intellectually and, and had a very interesting dialogue between quantum physics and psychoanalysis. That, of course, is the main uh, thrust behind the title, of course, Synchronicity. I always like to tell my uh, guests that unlike the advice to never judge a book by its cover, I always judge a book by its cover. And not only that, but also the title and the subtitle. So can you take us through the, the title? What, you know, how'd you come up with it? Uh, it's the shortest of all your titles, I think, uh, in some ways, uh, but, uh, but also the subtitle, The Epic Quest to Understand the Quantum Nature of Cause and Effect. So it's not about interpretations. What was the design? What are the design elements that went into it? And what's the meaning of the title and the subtitle for my audience? Well, first of all, I think it's a beautiful cover in terms of the, the design layout, although I can't take credit for that. I didn't okay. suggest the design myself, but the designer at Basic Books Hachette did a great job with that. Um, in terms of the title, I was trying to encapsulate this whole idea of a causal connections through time and this whole mystery that... Um, if you look back on in ancient times, the ancient Greeks were debating whether or not light whether or not light takes time to travel from the sun to earth, or whether light is instantaneous, and that meant a big deal because light was symbolic in ancient Greece of things like love and divine influence. There was a whole theological idea about light that if you were, you know, if light touched you, you were being blessed and you were given wisdom through light. And um, there's, there's ideas in mysticism. Uh, you're probably familiar with Kabbalah, where, um, where light com comes down through vessels, and that's a sim symbolism of, of God's influence on both the universe and on human beings. Yeah, let there be light. You know, right, first right. Sense, so, right. So light plays so much of a role. If light is instant, then divine influence and any kind of causal influence can be instant. So you say something, and all of a sudden thunder or lightning can strike, and that's it. But if light takes time, as we know, then certain things must take time. And, and if, you wanted, if you were angry for some reason with the people on Alpha Centauri, you couldn't immediately... <laughs> I am. I, I really hate those buggers. Send, uh, oh, this guy's got us into a lot of followers. Five minutes later, the people on a planet near Alpha Centauri, okay, we're going to... We're going to affect your weather five we're minutes. Gonna, we're going to send you some Kardashians <laughs> as punishment. Wait, you know, I'd have to wait four years for light to, light to travel there because that's how long uh, causality takes. And yet there seem to be in quantum physics now things that are not necessarily sending messages but are influences uh, in terms of, of a common core, uh, such as quantum entanglement, that happen instantaneously. Mm -hmm. or near instantaneously, as far as we can tell. And that means that you can have things are connected a very long distance in space, but not necessarily need um, the time for light to travel from one end to the other for them to share information. And that's very interesting to me. So back to the title. Well, if, if I wanted to make a really long title, I would say, well, the history of a causal influences throughout time. And then I just thought, well, Jung, even though I, I thought Jung was not completely scientific in terms of his ideas about, you know, day-to-day -day coincidences, I thought, well, it was really insightful of him to come up with that term to describe an a-causal connecting principle. And science needs an a-causal connecting principle, a way to understand a-causality as well as causality. So why not use that term and trace the idea of a-causality back to the ancients and trace it forward in time and use the relationship between Pauli and Jung as kind of the, the keystone of the book upon it, what everything, which everything else is built, and then go backward in time, go forward in time. So that was my aim. I think if I were writing this book, and you know, that's the highest encomium that I could give. I wish I wrote this book, right? Um, but you know, if I were writing it, I would worry that you know I get caught up in a little bit of the you know dancing woo woo masters dust and the the Tao of physics and so forth. Because you know, Young is not, as you say, associated with the highest levels of of scientific rigor and you know Paparian falsification, etc. Um, and yet he influenced you know one of the most important physicists who's really poor 
poorly understood of our time. How did you avoid, you know, kind of the pitfalls of getting into the woo-woo aspects of, oh, everything's entangled in our hearts and so forth. And it's a very rigorous, but it's, it's, it's full of wit. And it's, it's such a charming book. It's, it's an emotional book in some sense. I, I was very moved by their relationship and even aspects of betrayal. And, and you treat them, you know, I'm sorry for such a meandering question, but, but in, in other books, and maybe to an extent, you know, I thought you pulled it off very well with Wheeler and Feynman in the quantum labyrinth. But, you know, there's a tendency to lionize physicists like Feynman and, and even, you know, Wheeler, certainly Einstein, right, is otherworldly. But this is a very human portrayal. And I guess, how, how did you navigate between the shoals of, of kind of, you know, portraying them with all their flaws, but also really um, stoking the curiosity of the reader to want to learn more about the topics uh, that these two men were so deeply invested in? Well, I guess over time, I've been writing for now uh, 30 years, believe it or not. So it's it's the 30th anniversary this October of the publication of my first book. Oh, which congratulations. That's really, right. Yeah, time journeys. Yeah, I want to get into that. That's, which is that. really strange because I started writing when I was in my 20s. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you can do the math about yep. how old I am now. Yeah. You're on Wikipedia, unfortunately. You're but, 10 years um, older than me. That's all. <laughs> but, but, but anyway... Um, I know that a segment of my audience is going to be people who are very seriously interested in the history of science. There's a segment who's in, who are interested in just the science itself. And then there are people who are kind of like, wow, I want to learn about higher dimensions. I read, maybe they read something by, that is pseudoscientific, but they're, more, they're interested in learning more about the science behind it. So I feel like part of my job is to attract people who are interested in science, but also kind of interested in, I guess, Souther, some of the what would be called new age topics, and to tell them, okay, well, this is where science stops. And you can have your faith, you can have your feelings, but this is the scientific method. And if you want to learn science, this is what science says. Mm. And that's what I, I do during my talks. Um, I, you know, if someone asks me a question, I'm very respectful. If they say, well, what is you know, what does science say about the afterlife or what does science say about, you know, this matter of faith? I, I'm respectful of people for their faith, but then I say, okay, that's faith, that's religion. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about scientific experiments. So that's what I try to do to delineate it. So, um, you know, that was one of my goals in the writing and, the, you know, to personalize it so that people who are interested in the personalities are satisfied. I try to put in some scientific explanations. And uh, of course, no matter what I do, there's always going to be someone who says too much history or too much explanation. It's, you know, and there, I never know what the background will be to someone picking up my book. Like sometimes there are people who pick up a book, like for example, my Feynman Wheeler book, they read everything that Feynman ever wrote, maybe read everything that Wheeler ever wrote. And they're kind of like, oh yeah, been there, done that. I know all these stories. Like Halpern's not putting in anything new. And then there's people who pick up the book like Richard Feynman. I wonder what he's, you know, <laughs> so who he is. I guess he's a scientist. And then like pick, you know, start reading it and have no idea who Richard Feynman is. <laughs> right. so, but then learn something. So I can't exactly have like different versions of my book like this is for the person who right. knows everything about Feynman. This is for the person who knows nothing no. about Feynman. Then it'll appeal to nobody. Yeah, so I try <laughs> to make it on a level where a lot of people can appreciate it. I try to hit, try to hit the middle ground so that someone who's interested perhaps in a little bit of about modern quantum entanglement ex experiments will learn something, uh, whereas if somebody is really just interested in the history, they can skip that section or skim that section and look more at the ancient history. Yeah, there are all sorts of books, you know, that have been written about, you know, not only the individuals, uh, but then there's the, you know, kind of struggles within the individuals, Adam Becker's book, uh, What is Real. And, you know, I always come away with uh, with a feeling of a little bit of, of uh, being, you know, still, still hungry after reading it, because um, you really can't 
come up with a definitive explanation. Otherwise, we would have, you know, we'd understand all the loophole closings and we'd understand, you know, the, what alternative is correct and, and interpretation is correct, many worlds, Everettian, you know, uh, et cetera. But, um, but at least, and this isn't a criticism at all, it's just at least we come away at a minimum, you will come away from reading Synchronicity with an appreciation of uh, of the characters, a very a very intimate you know kind of portrayal of the relationship, and most of all, the stakes involved are so high between these characters, and and as I say, love uh, you know unseemly character behavior, uh, even betrayal, um, notoriety and credit. Uh, but getting back to the notion of time, the gears on the cover, I, I, I don't know if that was intentional, but, you know, the, the words become sort of like interlocking gears in a clock. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It really, you know, made me think a little bit about when I was doing research for my book uh, about the Nobel Prize that I, I was wondering, well, what, what was the first prize ever, you know, come up with? And why do people, you know, care about prizes so much? And it turns out at least one of the first prizes I could find out was really the longitude prize, you know, trying to understand where the earth, where on the Earth's lines of longitude a sailing ship was located and that was very important and very deeply related in fact in you know inextricably related to measuring time which is very difficult to do on a pitching deck of a, of a boat and i didn't include much of it if any of it in my book but really that longitude prize uh, was attempted to be won by none other than galileo himself and he had this complicated contraption of like a, a helmet with a telescope in it to look at jupiter's moons and and a lot of it was done to win this prize and, and, you know, a monetary prize, a prestige prize, which then later, after centuries, morphed into uh, the Nobel Prizes, having some elements of inventions and discoveries. Uh, but at its most basic core, um, this is a conversation I think humans have always had, um, not only on, like, how you measure time and if two events are contemporaneous, but what is the nature of time? And, you know, it's not often I get to talk to an intellect like yourself. How do you think about time? Uh, I mean, what is time to you if you have to explain it, not, uh, not to your grandmother or whatever, but how do you, Paul Halpern, how do you think about what time is intrinsically? Because I think unless you can explain that, you know, notions of synchronicity are interesting, but, but you're missing kind of the, the forest for the trees, so to speak, to use a bad analogy. Well, time is such a mystery for all of us, and, and we're always fighting against time and grappling with time and run out of time. Um, it's, it's very strange to me, and this is going back to my first book, Time Journeys, 30 years ago. Um, it's strange to me that there's so many ways of geometrizing time, like looking at time as a circle, looking at it as, as a straight line, and then spiral, uh, spiral and then... Uh, there are ideas about um, psychological time. There's physiological time, relativistic time. So time is obviously something that can be sped up or slowed down in different ways. Um, there's, you know, of course, relativistic um, time dilation. But then, you know, the fact is, if you're if you're waiting uh, for an hour, let's say in Disney World, you're waiting in an hour to go on a ride. And uh, that might seem like to take forever. And then you go on the ride and it flashes by like that, you know, because you're having so much fun. And, and it's just strange how the brain works. It just, there seems to be a connection between events, how we're experiencing events. And uh, the more events we're noting, the faster team, time seems to go by. So if we're, if we're not really, you know, if, if we're kind of... Um, you know, in the immersed in something, time really seems to whiz by. Mm. But then, if if we, our minds can't really hold on to anything, and we're kind of like thinking about things and and things aren't happening, then time slows down. So I've always been fascinated by this this difference and why um, why, for example, when you're when you're on vacation, um, time might seem to whiz by. But then, looking back on it, if you look back on a vacation. Um, you might be able to remember every single day because, you know, it's very eventful. Uh, but then you look back on like two weeks in the middle of a semester, 
And they're kind of like, oh, well, I don't think anything happened then. <laughs> no, yeah, tell me about it. I've got a bunch of kids at home, and it's like the, the months fly by, even the weeks fly by, the years yeah. fly by, but the days drag on and yeah. on. It's like, when is it, 7.30? These guys got to get in bed so I can have some yeah. alone time with my wife. But um, well, I remember, for example, my first yeah. trip to Europe, which was a six-week trip, and I remember almost every single day of the trip, and it kind of expands in my mind, but you know, a comparable six week period in, in early 2020. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I remember no, all the details. Time doesn't exist anymore during yeah, COVID, yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, I mean, there's a the politically incorrect, you know, uh, attribution to Einstein of, you know, time is relative, you know, sitting on a stove for a second feels like an eternity and talking to a pretty girl for an hour feels like a second or whatever, but was Jung interested in, in the perception, psychological perceptions of time, or was he noted in this more interested in the spooky action at a distance aspects of synchronicity well i think he felt he felt that they were connected he felt like he wanted to link psychological perceptions to physical ideas now he wasn't really the person to do that because he didn't he never really had a a serious background in physics but he was very interested in talking to physicists and bouncing ideas off of physicists going all the way back to his connection with einstein so in the early 1910s when einstein was teaching at the University of Zurich and the ETH in Zurich, um, briefly, Jung had dinner with Einstein several times. And that's when Jung started to think about space-time. And space-time has many attributes, but in general relativity, you can think about the possibility of signals being sent backward in space-time, theoretically, because you can think of space and time as a block, this block universe idea. And, and Einstein didn't really talk about it too much, but Jung was really fascinated with the idea that maybe um, space-time, the fact that it's a whole may- means that causality is an illusion and that we can really contact the past, we can contact the future, and, con- and that two people can share an unconscious identity, they can share ideas, you know, even though they're separate people. And I think Jung was fascinated with this, and that's why Jung was amazed when Pauli wrote to him, a quantum physicist, and shared all these dreams with him. A lot of the dreams had some connections with with quantum physics, or at least with symmetry. And it was just this treasure trove for Jung of ideas. And that's when Jung further developed the idea of synchronicity, which he had come up with before he met Jung, but then really fully developed while, uh, sorry, before he met Pauli, but really fully developed after he met Pauli, and then they bounced ideas off of each other. I'm sure it was, uh, you know, incredibly um, gratifying for Jung to have this, you know, eminent physicist, you know, creator of uh, exclusion principle idea, creator of the neutrino idea, uh, to have such an eminent personality, you know, taking his work seriously, engaging with him. Um, maybe, uh, you know, maybe it was it was fortunate that they did meet at that time. But I guess the, the question that, you know, I was thinking about, maybe this connects to your first book, um, <clears throat> Time Time Journeys, A Search for Cosmic Destiny and Meaning. Um, what is it about about time that seems inextricably connected to meaning? We, we talk about this, and there's a personal connection in my book, uh, sorry, my um, reading of the book in your book uh, with a, a character who you mentioned, Dr. Andy Friedman, who unfortunately passed away this summer uh, and uh, participated, actually the founder of this quantum bell experiment that you describe in the book. But, um, you know, and kind of feeling like, oh, we're always, we'll always be entangled and we had this entanglement. And a lot of the eulogies for Andy involve that very metaphor. What about, uh, you know, physics is relative or related to or relevant to, to meaning? I mean, a lot of people would say there's nothing that, you know, other than it causes me a lot of trouble to pass my, you know, my, my freshman physics class. How does, how does physics or, co- or astronomy or whatever, how can that impact the meaning of life? Well, there's this whole tele- tele- teleological idea in physics and also in theology. And even though people try to keep them separate, a lot of people think about the far future and they think, well, where is this all heading? And if the universe, for example, it ends in a cycle and 
you know, there were some ideas in, in philosophy, in particular Nietzsche's idea, that we might someday repeat everything. And I don't think many physicists take that seriously. But imagine if, if we ended in a cycle and everything started all over again, and that somehow our atoms ended up, you know, through, through sheer chance, maybe after a number of cycles, in the same position, and we, we lived our lives again and again in this kind of eternal return, then that would have a profound difference compared to whether or not um, we live only one life. Mm-hmm. And I think um, part of our motivation toward having goals and toward having meaning in our life, having a perspective, is this idea that time is fleeting and they, we don't really have a second chance and that we're trying to do everything we can in this life, to trying to go for everything in, uh, I know it's kind of a cliched expression, but in a bucket list, like checking off things that we need to do in our life because we know we're not going to have another chance. Mm. Whereas if those who believe, let's say, in reincarnation or in cosmic cycles mm-hmm. might think, well, I need to lead a just life, but the fact that I travel here or travel there really doesn't make a difference because I'm going to have another cycle. I'm going to have another opportunity. It's more like, well, I have to build toward the next cycle. So I think if you believe that our atoms will come together again versus believing that everything is fleeting and will end up in like a state of maximum entropy, there's kind of a different perspective on, uh, on the meaning of life. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up because I was talking uh, a couple days ago with uh, Rabbi David Wolpe, who's one of the more famous rabbis in, in America today. He's a thinker and author. And I actually asked him about that. I asked him if if a bucket list is a Jewish concept, you know, in other words, is that something that comports with Judaism? And his answer was essentially no, uh, although there are provisos that, you know, you are commanded essentially to observe in Judaism, to 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 not observe, but to partake of all the permissible pleasures you know you're not you're not permitted to partake of a blt but you are permitted and you should command yourself in a sense to take a voyage to the alps you know these are beautiful you know majestic wonders of the world and 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 really in a sense to cultivate and inculcate a sense of gratitude um and i wonder well as you were talking i was like do do you have a bucket list paul Uh, i don't really think about that okay i i i think about I think about the immediate future. Um, I love traveling. So I guess the closest for me would be uh, countries or parts of the world that I've never been to. Mm. Um, Like speaking of rabbis, I've never been to Israel, but I'd always, I've always wanted to go there. Oh yes. (laughs) So everybody else in my family has been there. So it's kind (laughs) of like, I'm the one left out. Um, But I'd also like to travel to, you know, um, to Africa, South Africa is supposed to be beautiful. Um, you know, parts of Asia that I haven't been to. So many parts of the world. I have traveled a lot, so traveling is one of my passions and interests. And uh, I've been to India once, but there are parts of the Himalayas and parts of India that I, I really would love to go to. So I guess that's the closest closest mm-hmm. that I have to a bucket list is is seeing the rest of the world. Yeah. So uh, an allied question that I asked the rabbi uh, the other day about that is, what if time for you wouldn't be finite? In other words, what if you took what my uh, seven-year-old is working on assiduously, uh, the never-dying pill? If, if, uh, if he can get it through clinical trials, uh, would you take it? Would you want to live forever? And you are the only one living forever. No, no clauses where you get to save it. So you wouldn't. Uh, that's that's an interesting question, but I guess the caveat is is being the only one living forever. Yeah, I I always think of that in terms of, I mean, this is this is a little bit hokey or far fetched, but there's there's an aspect of the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics where everybody has their own timeline, and in everybody's timeline, perhaps uh, at every junction, w- one's mind takes the timeline in which one survives. So if, if there's some, some kind of event, and this, this I should tell you, those who take quantum mechanics seriously, this is a little bit far-fetched and hypothetical. But imagine if every time there's a quantum measurement, the human mind uh, takes the version or branches into the version for survival. 
and that part dies off and part survives. Mm. Like, let's say, I'm, I mean, to, to think of a, a far-fetched example, imagine if um, you're near a radioactive material and you're either blasted with radiation or not blasted with radiation. Well, part of you would survive because one branch of reality would be the one in which you're not blasted with radiation. So you would survive that. So imagine if you kept surviving in your mind everything that happened, and then all of a sudden you realize, hey, wait a minute, I'm thousands of years old. What's going on? But everybody else that I ever met has died because they were in a different timeline. Right. So, I mean, that could happen. Um, so if a thousand years from now you're in your own timeline and I'm in my timeline, and you think, well, I'm the only one left in the world, and I think I'm the only one left in the world, will realize that this idea of, of quantum branching is, is, is true after all. Yeah, that's an expensive experiment, which actually brings up my next topic, which is, you know, we, we're at the point now where colleagues such as my late great colleague Andy Friedman and Anton Zeilinger, Jason Galicchio, David Kaiser, <clears throat> and others have been looking at ways to close different loopholes and Bell's inequalities. Um, I kind of feel like we're at peak, you know, peak bells inequality or something like where we've really closed so many of the loopholes. Yeah, there are a couple more left and you go through them and the most readable account to date. Um, sorry to David Kaiser. No, he, his book is, is, is less about that than some of the other attributes of the age of the nucle- of the nucleus and the age of the bit. Um, but uh, but in reality, you describe this in a very accessible fashion. But I almost feel I always felt dep- like Andy was always talking about. Well, the next step is to go from uh, these quasars at Redshift two, you know, which is like uh, you know three quarters of the way back to the Big Bang, basically. So he, and he wanted to use patches of the CMB, which I specialize in, and and right. and do quantum um, and close certain loopholes. But I'm like, it's kind of diminishing returns, even if you you know it, it becomes a, a, a question of you know how when do we stop these experiments and and just and just agree you know that these violations are all taking place are are we are we at this diminishing returns point in your opinion or no yeah i always wondered about that because the first some of the first entanglement experiments involved like crossing or teleportation experiments through crossing the danube river right that sounded really (laughs) exciting wow you can send information across the danube river but now it's like okay you can send it to a satellite you can send information to you know exchange information about quasars and so forth um it almost seems like people are trying to outdo each other but um i mean i can understand why people do this and it's kind of you know let's establish once and for all that bell's inequality works and you know that quantum entanglement is real mm-hmm. but I, I agree with you that at some point you kind of have to say well we have to accept that there are no hidden variables yeah. Because uh, I, I don't think anyone really, well, I, I shouldn't say, I, th- I think there's a small subset of physicists who believe in hidden variables, but I think the majority believe in, uh, you know, that Bell, ben, Bell's inequality applies and that, um, that quantum entanglement's real and that maybe there's some physical ways of dealing with it, but they would have to fall within, fall within you know, satisfying Bell's inequality. Speaking about experiments uh, once more, it's interesting to me to think back, you know, we kind of hold Karl Popper's demarcation, uh, you know, philosophy up as the apotheosis of what is science and what is not scientific. Um, Leaving aside that question, specifically, historically, he was driven to kind of uh, formulate that as a response to Freudian psychoanalysis. And, And I wonder, you know, reading the book... I mean, if Pauli, who obviously was, you know, such a such a titan of scientific method, you know, if how he could maintain the cognitive dissonance that it must have taken to know that, like, some of these things couldn't be falsified or 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 proven in a sense. Do you think that he just said, well, this is this is the, you know, a topic for a future time, or was he willing to suspend it because of a form of confirmation bias? How do you square that circle between this eminent scientist overlooking, you know, one of the, one of the hallmarks, the, the, touch, the, test, the test cases for Popper, which is psychoanalysis being non-scientific, or dream well, analysis especially? was very careful this was kind of a private venture 
Mm-hmm. So he had this private life. He had almost uh, or close to a breakdown around 1930, which mm-hmm. is which is interesting because he proposed the neutrino that year. So he had these scientific breakthroughs, but then almost a nervous breakdown around the same time. And his marriage. Because uh, of his marriage. Yeah. His mother committed suicide a few mm-hmm. years earlier. Had his failed marriage. His wife ran off with a chemist. He said, like, well, a bullfighter, I can understand, but a chemist? Why would she run off with a chemist? So because of that, this was a very personal thing. He kept kept it very private. These were his conversations with Jung. And then he had a friend, uh, Pasquale Jordan, um, who was a G- German physicist, who took Rhine's uh, psychic experiments much more seriously. And Pauli at first kind of dismissed these. And I think he always was always kind of like, well, let's see how this pans out. Let me see. I'll talk. He, he talked to Jung. He talked about symbolism. He was interested in these ideas. But uh, he never published, ex- you know, with one exception, he never published anything about these ideas. And the one exception was his work about uh, Kepler's astrology and symbolism in Kepler's astrology. And he meant that as a kind of historical analysis based on Jungian inter- interpretation. But Pali would not go to a journal, like a psychology journal, and say, hey, wait a minute, like, telepathy is real. He was not like that. He kept it very private. It, he, people didn't know that he was a patient of Jung until they co-authored this book. One, was, one uh, chapter was synchronicity, and the other was uh, Pauli's uh, analysis of Kepler. And then people said, hey, wait a minute, they're collaborators. Pauli is Jung's secret patient. And then they realized that. So now it's an open secret that, that um, Pauli is Jung's secret patient. But Pauli really didn't want a lot of people to know that. Yeah. And I think, you know, to give him the benefit of the doubt, it might not only have been <clears throat> because he was embarrassed or perhaps skeptical of the ultimate truth of yeah. what Jung was proposing, but also because there's this kind of halo bias effect that, oh, well, this great man, Nobel Prize winner, you know, uh, et cetera, he's doing this. And so now I'm just going to confer unearned, uh, uh, you know, allure and and a prestige to a field maybe he didn't know would actually pan out. So yeah, I think that's admirable. I, I didn't look at it as he was, you know, in the closet because he was, you know, scared of being exposed. But maybe as you know, it's like they cut out Einstein's brain, right? And then what? Well, not that much different. I mean, you probably know more than I do about it. But uh, but um, I want to just you know kind of uh, start winding up by talking about what uh, makes quantum mechanics so perplexing, and you know why there are so many books. Why did you think this book, you know, had a had a need to be written, which I which I agree with it did. Why why at this time are there so many books written about, you know, quantum mechanics, different interpretations, entanglement, reality, et cetera? What what is the cause of that, according to you? Well, I just wanted to add about um, the last point mm-hmm. that I found in my research at, in the archives at the ETH, I found a letter. I'm not sure how well known this is, but there was a letter from Rhine to Jung, saying that he received a letter from Pauli posthumously, that Pauli had doubts about Rhine's work. Yeah, you mentioned that in the in the acknowledgments, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was so, I was going to ask you about that. What? what... So Pauli was Pauli had become in his final years, his final two years, more skeptical, I think, mm-hmm. and he also didn't correspond with Jung as much. And I, I have hypothesized that maybe it was the fact. That in 1957, um, parity symmetry breaking was discovered in the weak interaction. And Pauli was a big believer in symmetry. And then he thought, hey, wait a minute, maybe symmetry isn't everything. There's a symmetry breaking. And he started to doubt a lot of his preconceptions. And around the same time, I don't know if it's coincidence or not, that's when he he stopped uh, corresponding with Jung for a while. And that's when he wrote the letter to Rhine expressing his doubts. But back to your other question about what, why it's interesting about quantum measurement and so forth. Well, the interesting thing is, in the 19th century, before quantum theory, you could very easily distinguish between psychic stuff, spooky stuff, and real physics. And the way you can distinguish is you say, okay, is everything happening locally? If the answer is yes, it's physics. Okay, everything in Newtonian physics happens locally. 
And then you say, is everything happening deterministically? If the answer is yes, it's physics. If it's random chance, then you say, well, maybe we don't really understand what's going on. We need to look at all the components. Maybe the randomness comes from a lot of components. But if someone said, okay, this happened just completely randomly, no explanation, you might say, well, that's not real physics. If something happens here and then a mile away, something else happens, and there's nothing in between to explain what's going on, say, well, that's not real physics. So it was very easy to demarcate science from non-science in the 19th century. And then quantum mechanics comes along in the 1920s, and all of a sudden people are talking about this black box idea. We don't know what's going on inside. You take a measurement, you get a result. You can have take a measurement one place, you get a result another place. And then it's kind of like, okay, what science versus pseudoscience? And that's why I think Einstein kept talking about spooky. It's too spooky. It's too much like pseudoscience. We need to go back to real science. And Einstein really thought that quantum mechanics had adopted the language of telepathy, of pseudoscience, and that needed to quantify itself more. And that's why Einstein kept trying for a unified theory of nature that would supersede quantum mechanics and be completely local and completely deterministic. That uh, yeah, explains explains a lot of the fascination because you know you have these great quotes from these great minds and Feynman's quip that nobody understands it and Einstein's quote about spooky action at a distance. I wonder, you know, sometimes and you, and you talk about this. I'll be talking with um, uh, Juan Maldacena in a couple of weeks about an interesting paper that you reference a precursor to in this book about uh, traversable wormholes. Uh, and of course, you know, many worlds and the multiverse, things that I'm involved with, Sean Carroll's written about. Um, <clears throat> it seems to me that, um, and not with your book as an exception, and, and I tried to be a little bit of an exception in my book, but um, it seems to be like kind of a little bit of overselling taking place in the works of, you know, Michio Kaku or even Brian Greene or, 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 or folks like that who I great respect for, but that we really have to make physics like extraordinarily bizarre and, and, and almost, you know, paradoxical or else the public won't be interested in it. And, um, I wonder your take on that. There's also proliferation of that. Like, Oh, there's a wormhole over here. There's, you know, teleportation over there. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, well, I have to confess, my second book was about wormholes. <laughs> I know, I know. And I was, I you started back, the trend again. You started the I trend. Look, I look back on it and I say, well, okay, wormholes are like subways. But then I'm kind of like, well, you know, maybe it was a little big, a little. I, I did say, well, perhaps for civilization millions of years from now. And I said, well, you would need, you know, a, the amount of energy or matter uh, of a galaxy to construct one. Right. I think I, think I had all these caveats and escape clauses. But still, you know, I think the fact is that um, if you're going to trade books, if, okay, if you're not doing a scholarly book, people are saying, well, what's the angle? Why is this going to attract people? So I think there, there, there often needs to be a balance mm. because, um, you know, if I wrote a book about um, Bianchi-type nine cosmologies <laughs> and chaotic elements, which is... You know, my, that's a must read. That's a beach read. I'd be like, okay. I'm taking that to the beach. <laughs> I mean, that's my, my PhD thesis. But, you know, if, if I said like, you know, uh, if I phrased it like, you know, chaos in the cosmos or something like that, it would be more likely to sell. But then when people find out it's just about an obscure universe model, they might not be so interested in it. So I try, I try to have a broad appeal at the same time I'm hoping that every statement in the book is scientifically valid. I, I, I try to take care to say, okay, this is hypothetical, this is speculative, this is real science. Um, so when I, for, for in some of my books, I talk about you know Everett's, uh, Hugh Everett's work, but I say, well, this is not accepted by everybody, and some people think it, it's very far fetched to imagine you know millions of copies of reality and so forth. That's so like try Sean Carroll's favorite, uh, favorite scenario for yeah, yeah, yeah. interpretation. So, so I try to be, I try to be strike a balance and, and it's not going to be for everybody. As I said, there might be people who want to talk about more far-fetched things and that's not me. Mm -hmm. But then there are people who are kind of like, well, unless 
unless you're talking about the standard model that's been verified for, you know, decades, you know, it's too far-fetched to describe to the general public. Mm-hmm. I can understand that. Yeah. I, I just try to strike a balance. And you do it uh, exceptionally well. So uh, I want to conclude uh, the conversation with questions that I ask all my guests. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of expecting not to put too much pressure on you, but you know, the, the, your answers will be really illuminating and illustrative and maybe tap into a love of sci-fi. I know that you've, uh, you have a love of the Simpsons and you've written uh, about a book about the Simpsons and you've appeared in their 20th anniversary 3d special. You have an IMDb page. It's pretty enviable, but I want to ask you um, some, some questions uh, about your future and even your past. And so it's appropriate for a book about time and synchronization. So the first thing is about the deep future. And it's a question I've asked many people uh, that have been guests on the show. And that's this concept of a will, but not a material will, an ethical will instead of material will. And the notion of what you leave uh, behind is more important. The material things decay uh, and and fade away. People spend your money, whatever. But um, but what you can leave ethically in terms of the wisdom that you've accumulated is what I'm curious about today. So if you were going to leave a, an ethical gift for humanity, what would it be? What what kind of wisdom would you include? And not not technology. We'll get to that in a second. But what ethical or, or piece of wisdom would you most like to um, to bequeath to humanity? Well, I think two aspects of my life that I would share um, are, first of all, I'm a great believer in having a balanced life and having goals that are personal goals that are not necessarily public goals. And right now there's, there's been this big um, movement to try to make put everything into social media and people describe all their activities and you know everything about somebody. I think people should be, in some ways, a bit of a mystery. They should have aspects of themselves that are personal. Not everything should be public. So I really believe in having that kind of balance. And I also believe in trying to put yourself, oneself, in other people's shoes. And I, one of my favorite songs, the song by Phil Oaks, There But For Fortune Go You Or I. And um, it's been covered by Joan Baez and other people. And it's a song about the fact that people in prison, people who are starving, refugees, they all could be us. And I think people don't take enough time to think about what it would be like to be born in a country where there's famine, there's war, and what, it, what those people must be like. And then you think, well, should we take in more refugees? And people sometimes view that question selfishly, like, oh my gosh, how would that affect our country? But then you think, what would it be like to be homeless and to have no opportunities and to try to raise children, for example, knowing that the children might end up poor and not have a job, and then have this idea of going to another country. Well, I think about the perspective of refugees, and I would like my children and so forth to put themselves in other people's shoes. And I'm happy to say that I have two sons that are that very much feel like that. And and are always thinking about other people's perspectives. Yeah, so I'm really I, happy about that. I've said before um, with previous guests that you know I view children, and it's not just biological children. It could be adopted children. It could be ideological children. Our graduate students. Um, as the only form of time travel teleportation that exists because you get to teleport not only your DNA, I think that's relatively meaningless in the grand scheme, uh, but your values. And if you can do that, you can achieve a form of immortality. Yeah, you might not be there, but a part of you will be. And that type of you know, entanglement is anything but spooky because I think it's it's something that's uh, that's unique to, to the human condition that we have that ability to transmit our values and teleport them into the future. And I think that's beautiful what you just expressed. Uh, the next thing I want to do is express also into the future, but something materially that you've come across in your in your immense uh, career as a scholar, as a Guggenheim fellow, and all the, the things that you've done in your life, um, inspirational to to uh, authors such as myself, um, but what p- 
piece of knowledge or technology uh, would you put in an obelisk of the kind that Sir Arthur C. Clarke you know, depicted in 2001, these machines used by an unseen civilization to uh, store information about uh, that would only be openable, you know, once humanity was able to go to the moon and, uh, or, and, and actually unlock the secrets within. What kinds of things would you put on or in uh, a billion-year-long-lasting time capsule? Well, thinking about that question, I think, well, what does the human race really need? What, what sort of, you know, technology does it need? And I wish there was a way, I don't know if this is through technology or through education, that we could abolish war, particularly um, weapons of mass destruction. And that is, of course, a big fear. I share that fear with a lot of people. But this idea that the human race could wipe itself out, the fact that uh, wars go on constantly, and then the fact that, that even on, on a local level, there's so much violence and so forth. And I, w- I would really like to see humanity evolve in sort of the Star Trekian way into global civilization or intergalactic civilization, if possible. I mean, talking about the far, far future that believes in peace and respect, respecting other cultures, respecting other alien civilizations if they exist, and just being emissaries for for understanding. I know that sounds kind of hokey. Maybe it's... <laughs> Not at all. Maybe, Actually, it's, it's in resonance. Oh, fashion, but I would really like to see the end of warfare, the end of weapons of mass destruction. No, you're in complete agreement with none other than uh, Jim Simons, Dr. Jim Simons, the world's smartest billionaire. Actually, I don't know, maybe you're a billionaire. You could be the world's smartest billionaire for all I know. At the University of the Sciences, they they probably pay better than here. But but anyway, I'm not complaining. Uh, Jim Simons said, you know, the most important science is political science, because if we don't figure out a way to cooperate, we're going to obliterate ourselves. And that's the highest priority that he had as well. So you're in, okay. you're in good company, Paul. Okay, great. Uh, last question is, uh, before we get to the spin zone, the plug zone at the very end, uh, the last question is, now we're going to go backwards in time, uh, assuming that such a thing is even possible. But um, Sir Arthur C. Clarke had one of his three laws, the first one being any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, the second one being for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. And the third one was the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And that's, of course, where I get the name for the podcast. Um, So I want to ask you, what thing about life might have seemed impossible to you uh, as a a 20-year-old, as a 30-year-old? Maybe someone said it was impossible. And you found out you did it because you went and had the courage to go a little bit into the impossible. Well, I think as a 20-year-old, I, I was very confined locally. I grew up in Philadelphia, so I'm, I'm the unique, unusual academic, I should say, that's ended up in the same uh, town where I grew up. And I traveled a little bit around uh, the United States, um, East Coast of the United States, but hadn't traveled too much and hadn't really met you know, that many well-known people. And I guess um, I kind of imagined or, you know, I felt very nervous about, um, you know, traveling and and meeting people from different cultures and and meeting well-known people. And I kind of, I guess I was very, I mean, it was very humble. I was from sort of, you know, a a, a quasi-suburban part of Philadelphia. And I didn't feel like I had the aspirations to be like somebody who could talk to well-known physicists and so forth. So I think I think I, I was very um, careful very early on in my career not to uh, reach out to um, to well-known people and so forth. And uh, maybe you know in my early books and so forth, they would have benefited by me saying, "Ah, oh, I'll just pick up the phone and call Nobel Prize winners," and I'm sure they would have answered me, you know, answered my questions. So I, could, I could have written to them. But yeah. then finally, um, around a little after 2000, around 2002, I got um, a Guggenheim Fellowship for the History of Higher Dimensions. And I thought, well, I have this Guggenheim Fellowship thing. Maybe I can try to contact people who are well-known. And that's when I reached out to John Wheeler, 
and had an interview with him. And it just felt great to be talking to him. And he was such a well-known person and I could ask him anything I wanted. And I just thought, well, this is, you know, this is something that I could pursue. So since that time, I felt, I still feel a little nervous approaching people, but I feel like I can reach out to people who are Nobel Prize winners or famous and talk to them. And I'm a lot less timid about that. Well, that's really good. It's good to know. Uh, although it's a little depressing because maybe you could have had 17 books. Um, <laughs> I, I think I saw your hands moving. I think you're working on 18 and 17 as we speak. You know, you're actually writing a book during this interview. It's amazing. Uh, speaking of what you're going to be up to now. And I, I want to say, Paul, in all honesty, the way you describe talking to you know people like Wheeler, et cetera, I, I feel like that talking to you, your wealth of knowledge, um, your, your, your mensch, as we would say, and, and you do so much for um, communicating science to the public, but you do it in a way that doesn't dumb it down and you have respect for your readership, which is what I've always been told is one of the most important things as an author. And you're, you're a light unto the many of us who are aspiring to do better and be better with our writing. I want to thank you for that. I want to ask you a quick question about the University of the Sciences. I, I know little about it. I always thought it was like a pharmacy uh, school. Can you tell me a little bit about it and then enter into the, the plug zone? Oh, wow. My publicity people at the university will be really happy with that question. (laughs) We are about to experience our 200th anniversary, our bicentennial. Wow, Mazel Tov. We started, thank you. Doesn't look a day over, you know, 100 to me. We started out as a pharmacy college, and we we split off from the Philadelphia College of uh, Medicine, uh, I think that's what it's called, the doctors, the physicians, Mm -hmm. uh, Philadelphia College of Physicians, I'm sorry. And... um, there, there were doctors, and originally they were the only ones who could say, well, uh, what are the real medications? And then the pharmacists said, well, rather than the doctors just saying it from memory, let's put this down. Let's come up with a pharm- pharmacopoeia and a book about all the medications that are, that are allowed. Wow. And that led to the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy bunch of pharmacists who said, okay, we can take control of our own profession. Now, flash forward more than 100 years later, and they're like, well, let's add chemists. Let's add biologists. They kind of relate to it. And then finally, when I was hired, um, they hired physicists. They didn't have a physics major yet. But then they started saying, let's become a university, which was very exciting for me, as I felt like I felt like I didn't have to switch jobs because I started out in a pharmacy college (laughs) and then my university switched, became a full-fledged science university with emphasis on the natural as well as the health sciences. And then we set up a physics major and now we finally have a master's program in physics. So I didn't have to do anything. It changed around you. It changed around you. (laughs) Yeah, like the university developed around me and now I'm teaching this year all upper-level physics students or graduate physics students, and it's very exciting. So I really love teaching Wonderful. here, and they're great students, very friendly students, and we're, um, we're a rare example of a university that's hybrid, so you can uh, do things online or do things in person wow. depending upon the course. Wow. So I've been teaching my classes mostly in person, and then I'm giving a hybrid option or an online option for students who prefer online. So... It's been fun. Very good. And tell us where we can find you. I, I, you know, I love when people say, where can people find the book? As if it's a great mystery that you have to derive. You know, uh, We can yeah. find the book anywhere, and you should listen to it um, on audio. I re- particularly recommend that because it's, it's you get uh, the reader, you get Paul's words, but in someone else's voice, it's, it's really well done. Uh, and get the hardcover as well because it's, it's actually a beautifully printed and bound book. I, I love the way Basic does things. T.J. Kelleher, I, I know him. He was your editor, I guess, for a little bit, maybe for the whole book. Um, tell us where can people find you on the internet and in the limited amount, which I respect, uh, of social media that you do so uh, exceptionally engaging. Well, I'm very active on Twitter. So check out my handle, P. Halpern, my first initial and my last name. And I tweet a lot of history of science things. So that's my, my specialty on Twitter. Um, there's a Facebook page set up by a fellow writer that's a fan page for my books but i'm not i'm not active in that but that has information about me i don't have an instagram page yet but but i am very much on twitter 
Yes, you are. I, I, I always enjoy your your photographs, your history, uh, historical perspective. And I want to thank you again, Paul, for coming into the impossible, for venturing into the impossible. And uh, I want you to keep in touch with your uh, with your uh, future work. And uh, you're welcome back on the show anytime. It's been such a pleasure and honor for me to have you on the show, Paul. Thank you so much, Brian. This is a great, great podcast. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, rate, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD. Watch us on YouTube. Listen on iTunes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valco.